Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, the numbers are going. See? See? <laughs> it's Paul and Jocelyn. And we're going to um, make a step towards finishing reviewing the book Gaia's Garden. By Toby Hemingway. It's actually Gaia's Garden, A Guide to Homescale Permaculture, the second edition. I think it's been a few years since we last recorded uh, reviewing, because we were doing like the chapter-by-chapter review stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Now today, when we're recording this, it's February 2nd. In 2017. And um, today's got like a bunch of days to it. I mean, it's it's Masanobu Fukuoka's birthday. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Imbolc or Saint, uh, it looks like. Bridget, but I guess it's pronounced Breed, St. Breed's Day. What the hell is that? It's um, Imbolc, and it's a, it's a pag- pagan holiday about ah. the halfway point uh, to spring. And and it's Groundhog's Day. So and it's Groundhog's Day, yeah. yeah. Groundhog's Day. But, but Groundhog's Day was kind of the overlaying over Imbolc and St. Reed's Day. And of course, here's here's a big novelty item about Groundhog's Day. It was one year ago today uh, on Groundhog's Day that Mike Ayler died. And Mike Ayler is, you know, his like his email address was mole at sandpoint.net. And of course, his most famous book, the $50 and up underground house book. So he just kind of had this passion about everything underground and it's Groundhog's Day. Yeah. That is amazing that that's the day he passed. And yeah, it's um, to I think a lot of people like to make seed balls today in honor of Masanobu Fukuoka. Oh, I didn't know that. That that does make sense. It's a good yeah. seed ball day. Yeah, and that's kind of I think that uh, fits with the Imbolc tradition too, where you're looking forward to spring and planting. And there's something about lighting candles on Imbolc too. I'm sorry, I don't remember the tradition there. I, I'm just so pagan, unsavvy that these are things I really don't know. Mm-hmm. I I do remember learning about um, Beltane. And that the maypole is not such an innocent thing for children. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, the, the pole is supposed to be the dick. <laughs> and then, as you move the ribbons around the pole, there's a red ring that's up, being held up by the ribbons that slowly moves down. That's the vagina. Honoring nature in all its forms. And it's it's sex. <laughs> I put it more poetically than that. <laughs> it's fucking. So um, Beltane's about reproductive re- reproduction, yes. and yeah. and part of the ceremony I learned is that when you finally get to the end and the maple's all done, everybody's supposed to run off into the woods and have sex with somebody they've never had sex with before. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if I knew we were going to talk so much about pagan <laughs> rituals, I would have looked up in bulk and uh, St. Breed's Day or Brigid's oh, right. Day. Sorry. Those kind of things a little bit more before the Putting podcast. Putting you on the spot there. Yeah. I, now, we, we're, it's been several years, like three or four years, four years, I think, since we last recorded the, the last bit of review about Toby's book. And we, we want to get through the last of it. Toby died uh, uh, just a little over a month ago. December. Uh, December 20th, I believe. So I think so. Be a month and a half ago or so. And um, and Toby was going to, uh, he told me in an email, he was going to listen to all of our reviews of his book, and then he was going to review our reviews. Yeah. Only I just never got around to finishing well, we've been planning to get back to this for four years now, and that's what happens when you buy property. I mean, you got the property in June of 2013, and, you know, once we have property, things change. Plus, you still had uh, another Kickstarter and Kickstarter rewards to deliver, and some of those things just took priority over podcasts. And then... uh I got you back into making podcasts again. That's right. So if people <laughs> like this, you got to thank Jocelyn. She she doesn't like pie so much. <laughs> you have to thank her some other way. I am learning how to make them a bit better now, though. That's right. That's right. Your last pie was very good. Thank you. Yeah. I I, I thought I'd practice a little. Yeah, I'm getting fat. <laughs> As if you thought I wasn't fat before. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault. If I make a pie, it doesn't mean you have to eat the whole pie. No, we just got back from doing kind of like a little speaking tour. We, I think I gave four presentations. Is yes. that right? Four different cities. Uh, first one was was in... Kalama, near- Washington, near Portland, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And that was Animals in the Landscape. Yep. And then the second one... Was in Woodenville? Yes, Woodenville, Washington at 21 Acres. And that was replacing irrigation with permaculture. And then Yakima, same presentation, only I had a ceiling fan that was threatening my head. And you had to sit down the I had time. to sit down because it's like it was my forehead. It wanted to eat my forehead. Yeah. It wasn't like just you know wisping at the top of my hairs or something. It was like, no, I'm going to whack you. It wasn't on. It was just at the wrong height. Yeah. So, that, yeah, that, that was, was all... threatening me! <laughs> it was threatening me! <laughs> and then uh, after Yakima was... Yakima, Washington was Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Yes, yes. And um, so it was quite... And then I gave all the... Wait, wait. All of them were offered on the deal for being free. Three of them were actually free, but one of them didn't quite meet the criteria. So basically what I did was, is I said... I'll come and give a free presentation at your place. It'll be if you bring in 40 people. And if you don't bring in 40 people, that's no problem. Just give me 400 bucks. So one place, it was like 30-something, and so they gave me 400 bucks. Um, <coughs> the, other, the other three were free, and uh, it was all like... We just sent out something on the Dailyish email. So it's kind of a gift to our Dailyish email peeps. And we said... We're going on a trip. Do you want us to do this? And and then, you know, I think actually more than four people said yes, but we just took the first four because it gets a little overwhelming. 
Yeah, it it adds a layer of complexity to planning a trip, and um, there are a lot of logistics to work out. You know, in in hindsight, it would have been nice if we had a thread, which someday I might make still about, well, this is what Paul needs to present at your place. And, oh right. You know, uh, instead, you know, I had to have those emails with four different people or four different groups of people and then they're like well i don't know if we can do that i'll have to ask my husband and you know stuff like that so it would have been much easier if i just had one place to point people to to get that information and and so there's ways we can streamline it and make it happen again because i think you enjoyed doing that i did i enjoyed it and of course we, I think I was getting a little cabin fever. I was glad to get out, and and uh, and I got to go and and you know, touch the ocean. Although the weather was kind of saying, "Fuck off." <laughs> you, you were kissed by the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I turned my back on the ocean for just a second, and it got me <laughs> up to his knees. Yeah. I was laughing well, hard. She was suddenly full of sand. <laughs> Yeah. I was laughing. We were like kids at the beach. Don't get wet. Man, that was <laughs> the wind was blowing so hard. I, I felt so dumb with sopping wet socks and my sopping that was wet shoes. Funny. <laughs> anyway, there was some amazing pie down there though. That was that was delicious. And amazing pie. people um in Oregon and amazing people all over. I mean I have stories and stories and stories of a lot of the amazing people we met. Um we could probably fill a podcast just talking about the trip. Yeah. Yeah, but, but that's not what we're doing today. No, um, we spoke for D- uh, Diego's Permaculture Voices podcast. He put out a, a kind of a tribute to Toby, and we spoke about Toby there. Um, I took Toby's PDC in 2010, his Seattle weekend PDC, and. Um, he just amazes me, and and we. I think I coordinated an event or two with Toby, and of course we've seen him at different events over the years. At the very first Permaculture Voices, he came, he and Larry Santoyo and Jeff Lawton came to a dinner at the Permies house where we rented a house, and um, I, you know, I just still want to say that I just think um, Toby was an amazing person and will be sorely missed. We have at least two podcasts with Toby where mm-hmm. Toby was here in Montana and and he said, my wife is away for the weekend. Let's do a permaculture party or something. He was like, yeah. he was feeling like he needed some company for the weekend. So then a bunch of us here in Montana all went out to go see Toby and kept him company for a weekend. I recorded a couple podcasts, some videos. They're all out. I wasn't here yet or I couldn't go to that or something. I think it was before I got this piece of property. It's when I was looking for property. Right, Mm -hmm. right. So, all right. So this is, we're going to do half of chapter 11. Mm -hmm. And I think he took chapter 11 and he expanded it to be a whole new book. So he's got that new book out, The Permaculture City. And this is called, this chapter 11 is called Permaculture Gardening in the City. Yeah, your coughs are kind of loud in the microphone, so that one was not so loud. Hmm. Well, I, I'm worried. The people who listen to podcasts in their earbuds, I'm just wincing every time thinking, oh, that would hurt somebody's ears. Because <laughs> that's how I am. 
Um, Maybe they can be edited out a little bit. We'll see. That's <laughs> probably not going to happen. No, we don't edit much. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> All right, sorry. so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a bit of the opening here. Much of what's been offered in earlier chapters assumes the reader has a fair-sized yard. Not much less than a quarter acre or so. But plenty of people live in cities where yards are small or even non-existent. And since I've returned to city life since writing the first edition of this book, I know that creating an ecological garden in the city carries with it some special challenges. Fortunately, they are matched by a pile of opportunities even larger. Many of the urban gardeners' dilemmas arise because city life puts a premium on space. The crush of people in cities makes every bit of ground heavily trafficked, intensely used, and fiercely sought for a host of competing uses. What you are eyeing as a sweet garden spot, your kids will deem their playground, your spouse as perfect for the comfy chaise lounge, your dog as an ideal site for digging, or worse. Those are his words. Right. right. <laughs> and the letter carrier as the quickest path to the next yard. Right off, it's obvious that urban yards need to be exquisitely multifunctional. In keeping with the principles of permaculture, though, rather than viewing this as a liability, we can think of the necessity for multiple use yards as a spur to greater creativity and a more engaging landscape. In case any suburbanite readers are thinking, this won't apply to me, and are ready to skip ahead to the final chapter, I'll suggest that these space-saving, high-intensity design approaches will apply to everyone. All right. <clears throat> yeah, um, I heartily agree. And he talks about how this could, some of these design challenges can even apply to rural spaces as well. And we find that here because we are growing space around our zone one of our house is hemmed in by steepitude and a road. Yeah, we're we're well, even just zone one, zone one around the house, we're hemmed in by 10 to 12 foot hugelkultur berms by fencing, by rocks and steep, um, steep hillsides that just because we're on a very steep, rocky piece of property. And so our growing space is really at a premium and probably not much larger in some places, except for the hugel berms, than urban lots. Well, I think it's going to be the same for almost anybody's zone one. It's going to be yeah. really rare that, I mean, the techniques that are listed in this chapter mm -hmm. are your zone one techniques. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna do everything more intensively. You're gonna have more human interaction, and it's it's like I want to grow lots and lots and lots just right out the door, just yeah. right next to the house. Yeah. And and so even if you do have a lot of acreage, I mean. It, because the other thing is, is that when you get into your zone two, how you manage the land changes so much. You're, 
you know, when when you're in zone one, it's like you, you kind of have this thinking. I'm not, I'm I'm an, I advocate against compost piles in general. But, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to make a compost pile. I'm going to compost all of my kitchen scraps and all these other things. And it's kind of like in your zone one, you can mulch with compost. And there's all kinds of things you can do with compost. You get into zone two and you need enough compost for that. That's a lot of compost. Suddenly, you might need a tractor to turn it because you got so much of it. And then into zone three, it's like, Oh no, that much compost would just be stupid. You know that doesn't doesn't even make sense. And then if you did make some compost, you have to spread it out so thin that it would do almost no good at all. So it's like no, there's there's stuff that happens in your zone one that's just managed differently. Yeah. Now one of the things I thought of in this opening bit is it's like there's an organization called Food Not Lawns, and I think that there's also a book called Food Not Lawns. Yes. And and I just kind of, as I'm reading through this, I'm kind of thinking about like the the whole Food Not Lawns thing. I, I, I kind of, I, I feel so strongly that there is a place for lawn. And so as Toby's pointing out, it's like, you know, for your dogs or your kids, if you don't give them a, a place to play, you know, they're going to destroy the, the food you're trying to grow. And then on top of that, in a lawn, you can grow all kinds of foods and all kinds of medicinals and all kinds of fun things in the lawn, a mowable meadow. Right. And so I, I just kind of feel like as you're trying to pack things, don't eliminate the lawn. By all means, please reduce it. You know, I've, I've been to, I don't know how many properties where it's like they've got a, you know, as Toby is saying here, a quarter of an acre. And it's it's kind of like okay I've I've been to so many properties where it's a quarter of an acre and it's entirely lawn and that's all it is and I kind of think like seventy percent of that or more can can be gardens and right. and the amount of lawn that you need is reduced dramatically right um, at least that's what I would like and I I imagine for some people it's like no no I they don't they don't want that and that's that's cool but. I would I would much prefer to see a lot more garden, but not 100% garden. Yeah, I, I'm just so surprised um, that people think the lawn is an easier thing to maintain than garden beds. So if you have well mulched garden beds, they take a lot less maintenance than a lawn. And then people are maintaining this lawn, maintaining this lawn. Oh, I'll play ball with the kids. And all the kids are inside playing computer games. Nobody plays on the lawn. And everybody resents taking care of it. It's it's funny. Anyway. Get off my lawn! Yeah, Sorry, you, just, you make a good curmudgeon. Just had that. You know, I, I, I think I'm quoting a movie there now. Yeah. Yes. That's with Clint Eastwood, I think. The great strength of any city... The reason people go there is the social capital, the synergies and opportunities generated by creative people working together. Yeah, we both had highlighted that section. That's that's a few paragraphs down. So Paul's not really reading the whole chapter. That would be That'd be a violation of copyright. Yes. So we Whereas skip. this is fair use. Yes, <laughs> right. We're just quoting out of bits of here. I have to point that out. Um, and 
And Please I, buy this book there, that'll... <laughs> yeah. Chelsea Green will forgive us now. <laughs> or, you know, give it as a gift to someone that you want to teach a different way to garden. There's so much in here that's so beautiful. I really think if you already have it, give it as a gift. I've done that a few times. I think that's a brilliant idea. Um, but, yeah, the social capital is interesting um, as he's talking about this. and And we haven't... We haven't really tried to build this out here, but the example he uses for social capital is how um, he has basically a neighborhood orchard. Oh, oh, oh! I, I, I marked that for ahead? reading too. Let me, let me, okay. let me read that. But that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Here is an example. In moving to Portland, Keel and I. So Keel is his wife traded our 10 rural acres for a 50 by 100 foot lot. My first thought was, how am I going to fit all of my favorite fruit trees into this tiny space? The yard was almost a blank slate, mostly grass, some bark mulch hastily installed by the seller to mask formerly weedy spots, and a dog run. The sole trees were a sapling Japanese maple and a mature European prune plum that straddled the property line. The plums came ripe just after we arrived. One morning I was chatting with my next-door neighbor, a retired electrician and fervent gardener named Johnny, while we harvested plums on our respective sides of the fence. Johnny asked me if I liked figs. My strong affirmative resulted in a plastic tub brimming with ripe mission figs wobbling my way from his side of the fence. For the next few weeks, whenever whenever I returned the empty basin to Johnny, it came back moments later loaded with fruit. I'd also met my neighbor Teresa, who lived across the street. And because I had a surfeit of plums, I carried a bag of them over to her. She smiled ruefully and said, Sorry, I don't need plums. I've got a tree of my own. Teresa then told me that I had just missed peach season when she had been giving fruit away. But in a few weeks, she said, her Granny Smith apples would be ready and I should load up on those. The neighbor next door to Teresa, a computer guy named Will, overheard us and said, If I needed fruit... I should come right over and help him harvest the enormous Bartlett pear tree in his backyard. Will got my bag of plums, and I came home with twice as many pears. My neighbor's yards had become my orchard. I realized I didn't need to plant all my favorite fruit trees. I just needed to plant the ones that were missing from the neighborhood. Yeah, that's pretty epic. And and. This is something I've learned from here, too, um, and and from Fred and Kai and some of the other residents and what they've done in the communities around us. There, There's so much about this that is not just in the city, I think. So, so a lot of people, a lot of homesteaders or permaculturalists, when they first get their property, they invest in hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of fruit trees and plant and plant and plant all of these grafted 
onto rootstock fruit trees because they don't want to wait 10 years for something from seed to start producing or however long it might take, those kind of things. And they're, I need my own fruit. I need my own fruit trees. And they, they invest a lot of time and money into planting those and then they forget they didn't do their earthworks right (laughs) (laughs) right do your earthworks first right so there's most people do that because they they want what feels like more food security to them we have not been doing that here we waited to plant a lot of that until we did some earthworks and got some roads in and infrastructure and then we're still planting a lot by seed and that's going to take some time And in the Missoula area and surrounding areas, there are lists even out in these rural areas you can get on for people who have fruit they don't want to harvest. And in Montana, it's a list so that people will come get the fruit off their trees, even in the urban areas or suburban or rural areas, so that the bears don't. So it doesn't attract the bears in the fall and the off season or whenever the fruit's ripe. You know, bears will come after those fruit trees. And people don't want to attract and and teach the bears that that's where food is because then they get into garbage, they're destructive, you know, yada, yada, yada. So a lot of our residents here have gotten loads of free fruit in surrounding areas, or they've just found people who just don't have time to harvest it. And Fred's comment, which I thought was awesome, was you don't need fruit trees to produce right away when there's so much free fruit available almost anywhere you are, even quite rural. Right. Now, just real quick about bears. Around here, (coughs) the bear is the black bear. Yes. And um, uh, really not that much of a problem. The only kind of problem they are is that, is that they do, if you, they get into your garbage, they will want to perpetually play in your garbage. Yeah. And they, they will also go after beehives and, yeah. and stuff. So, um, but it's, it's not like they're a threat to people at all. They're, right. It's just, a it would be like a large raccoon, really. Yeah. But I mean, you know, they break things and <laughs> Yeah. You, they, you, you might not want them in your perfectly pruned apple tree, you know. It may not be Reshaping perfectly it. pruned anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, it'll, it'll be enhanced. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's problems with attracting bears. So, um, and, you know, they might not like your dog barking at it and, you know. Your dog might suffer, but... Right. I just don't want people to think... Because in Montana, we do have grizzly bears, but they're just not in this part of Montana. Right. And and so, you know, when people are like, oh, I don't want to attract the bears, it's... It's not as it, it's not no. a, it's not scary reasons. It's it's nuisance nuisance reasons. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. So I I I kept thinking about these things in the background as he's talking about you know his neighbors he can walk to and just get all this abundance and surplus of fruit. We can't we don't exactly walk to neighbors to get surplus and abundance of fruit, but we've still. Um, uh, the residents here have done a lot of that and shared a lot of that bounty with you and I because you and I haven't had the, you know, haven't taken the time to go out and harvest free fruit. We'd, we'd rather, with 
where we're at with what we're doing, we'd rather just buy it until we're growing more of our own. Um, right. Although we've been given a lot by uh, the residents here. Yeah. And it's amazing. They'll, I mean, even when they go out and go huckleberry picking, they always bring back a couple of cups of huckleberries for us. What um, lovely guests. Yeah. Maybe maybe even a quart. So, which a quart of huckleberries, I mean, that's an hour. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and I think it's, you know, they're trying to risk reciprocate i think for a lot of the feast nights we provide out here too so oh okay i yeah. think you know sure. or whatever there you know it's lovely to have gifts like that going back and forth all right here's a question that's been i've seen it around on um uh, a lot of permaculture sites i, I i've seen it thrown in my face at PDCs where a, a student will tell me that I'm wrong and that I don't know what I'm talking about and that they're the one that knows. And uh, it looks like Toby is going to side with me on this one. Oh. And urban yards are rarely big enough to encompass more than permaculture zone one and a modest zone two. The areas of intensive use, larger zone two and zone three functions, such as orchards and woodlots, usually won't fit. But your neighbor's yards can be your zones two and three, just as your yard can be part of theirs. Now, I've had people tell me that it's a fact that every urban plot needs to have a zone five. Huh. And that, you know... They, and then they break down their urban lot into, like, here's my zone three, here's my zone four, and here's my zone five. And and I'm like Toby, where it's like, I think your urban lot is 100% zone one. You might have some zone two, but mostly I think it's zone one. I mean, you could even say... Zone 0 0.5 and zone 0 0.9. Right. You know? Well, I'll, you know, the best examples I could think of that almost get close to that, but they're still not a zone 5, is is a brush pile. Or, like, if you have an empty lot that's totally overgrown with blackberries or weeds and nobody can get in and under the thorny mess of it you know mm -hmm. but but that's still not the same as i think what a zone five would be i mean you might have an untouched completely wild little tiny pocket on your property and i think it's useful to have that uh, um but it's not going to be wild wild does that make sense if you even if you have a brush pile that you created or somebody created 10 years ago. It hasn't been touched for 10 years. You know it's amazing habitat for snakes and critters and little butterflies or whatever. I still don't think a brush pile counts as a zone five. I, yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't. I would, I, I mean... We add brush piles to zone two. Right. You know? Yeah. No, I'm just trying to imagine what could be on a tiny lot. I mean, could there be a little no. tiny bit? I guess that's that you my don't point. Touch? Uh, on an urban lot, when you've got like a quarter of an acre and you're out there and you love gardening and you love permaculture, 
there is no zone five. Now, I suppose it's possible that somebody has decided that they will never go into their backyard and it's going to be what it's going to be. And the closest they ever get is to look at it through the window. Mm. And that's and that they're making this choice that in a way it kind of becomes a zone five. Maybe. Of sorts. Yeah. But um, well, I, I'm even just, then it's still debatable. Yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Like even if your backyard bumped up against a um, green belt and it was like acres and acres, but then the green belt would become your zone five, not your backyard. You know, I mean, even if you had like one little corner that was kind of similar ecosystem as a green belt of your backyard, you know, it's still not zone five. Anyway, it's hard for me to get that there. Yeah. I I think that the thing I want to walk away from on this is that, you're, if you're in an urban area, pretty much your whole lot is zone one. Maybe there's a little bit of zone two. There is no zone three. There is no zone four. There is no zone five. And there's more about this later in the chapter, which I think is really interesting, that diagram later. But we'll, we'll get well, that's to that a, later. I didn't think that was so interesting, but you'll get to expand uh-huh. on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as we're on our way, I thought there was – because when you're making your design – and you're, um, you know, you're sitting down and you're trying to think of like all the different sectors. Mm-hmm. So there's the wind sector and the sun sector, and there's, you know, the the the, the people sector and whatnot. There's all these different sectors of that are going to influence, you know, your design. Right. And you 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 tend to like you know scribble those down as you're beginning your design. Yeah. And he listed off some things that were like, okay, here is some interesting urban sectors yeah and so one was that came up was the billboard sector and so somebody like their their plot of of soil was like directly behind a billboard and they ended up deciding that they can't really grow a garden there because of the damn billboard so they have to grow their garden in the front yard well yeah it was it influenced it both shaded the garden and then it was lit up at night so it was also a kind of icky influence on the people trying to sleep at night so it was the billboard sector the billboard sector Yeah. yeah And the next one was the school child sector. Yeah. Somebody was right next to a school, and uh, they had tomatoes growing out in their front yard. Right next to the sidewalk. Right next to the sidewalk. And um, so they, the, the, the eco-village people, the people that, that planted the tomatoes and tended the tomatoes, they never got any tomatoes. The kids, as soon as they barely started to turn red and weren't even ripe yet, the kids would pluck them and eat them or throw them or whatever. Little yeah. fuckers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so then uh, they would just gobble them all. So then uh, the, the solution they came up with was to plant tomato varieties such as green grape, which never turns red but sports delicious green fruit, black creme, which ripens to an unappealing green purple with black stripes. And they had a few others in there. I, I just thought that was, was so brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. They had to outsmart <laughs> the kids that really didn't know about these other tomato varieties. I, in a way, it's kind of cool that the kids recognize a tomato. Yeah. 
and yeah. and harvest it and eat it because I I I remember a story where somebody paid somebody else to put a garden in for them, and then the garden came up and it had a bunch of tomatoes, but the people there they weren't sure if they were really tomatoes or just something that looked like tomatoes. Oh, right. They were worried they might be, you know, poisonous or something. Right. Or is it safe to eat? You have to yeah. do something before you <laughs> eat the tomato. And so there's all these things that they didn't really know. So they had they had like, you know, a whole bunch of huge gobs of tomatoes growing in their garden, but they still drove to the store and bought tomatoes and ate those. Right. Because those, yeah. those are food, right? Yeah. So at least these kids were like... <clears throat> they knew the red tomatoes. That's good. Because I, you know, otherwise I'm, I'm kind of losing a little faith in our youth of, of today. And as as old people always do. <laughs> <laughs> so. But that is pretty funny. They they outsmarted the kids with different colored varieties. Um, and yeah, I do think the sectors in an urban environment urban location can be much, much more challenging than in rural. Well, rural, you have the wildlife sectors, which is a different kind of challenge. So you've yeah. got either urban challenges or wildlife challenges. More that, Okay, let's the noise sector. And I know that where we are, I complain about, like, you know, a car drives by and it's like, damn car, I can hear you going by. Mm-hmm. I don't want to listen to that. You know, mm-hmm. and of course the lab it's quiet, but um, uh, I'm I'm just kind of thinking like I remember how when I lived uh, in Green Lake in, in Seattle, then um, I lived half a block away from Aurora, and that was a lot of road noise. Yeah. And so now that I think about it, it is really kind of quiet here, but. You know, I don't know on the on the flip side because over there at least the noise was really constant. The well, whole city around you had a constant buzz. Well, in Aurora, certain parts of Aurora were a crime sector too, so um, it could be kind of dangerous. Uh, we have somebody coming in. Hi, hi, Fred. <laughs> We're making a podcast. <laughs> so no, we didn't. I, I do think that there's something to be said about the noise sector in in an urban area, and it's just it's just going to be more of a of an overall. I mean, so the point I was trying to make is like you get the overall hum of the city, yeah, and then there is noise. And you can block some of it out. But here it's more like when the car goes by, it's like, you know, you had this quiet and then a car went by. And and it's, I don't know. At base camp, not the lab. Yeah. Not as much at the lab. Right, right. All right. Next up, oh, that's the that's the chart that you said that you liked. Yeah. When I took my PDC, people were all about the social permaculture. They loved, loved, loved the idea of social permaculture. Culture And, of course, it was an urban-based uh, permaculture design course. So people were more interested in the social things. And I think, you know, I think this go- is really kind of a cool other way of looking at zones when you're in an urban environment. And this guy, uh, 
Bart Anderson made this chart and it's a circle and the inner part of the circle could be more like your zone one. You can walk there, you know, but if it's not in your own yard, I still probably wouldn't call it zone one. But then he, he did another layer of a zone that if you could bike there and he did a third layer, well, maybe you could take public transportation there. And the fourth layer was you could drive there yourself and then the outer edges of it were you could take a plane there and so this is where in the city people might walk to a neighbor to trade fruit you know and that's you've got the neighborhood orchard or you might bicycle to a park that has fruit or places you could forage you know so that might be more like your zone three or four or yeah. you know sort of i mean if toby were still alive I would I would go and harass him about this chart, and and I would <laughs> say, okay, all right, I see what you're doing there. How about this? Can you call it Zone Six and Seven and Eight and Nine, rather than like, you know, redefining our already existing numbers? Right. Yeah. He yeah he did say that getting there by plane was more like zone five, but you're right. I think it's, that's a little too much, um, at too much of an extension of the zones. But, but I thought this was an interesting concept for social permaculture and urban design. Um, and I, I think there's a lot more, interaction and exchange, you know, because they're talking about community, local businesses, friends, you know, other groups you might be involved in in, in the city, like your church or whatever. So I, I just think it's an interesting way to look at resources and using surplus sharing and exchanging surpluses. So I thought it was good, even if you didn't like the zones. Yeah, I want... It, um. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got Walmart in there on that graph, and I was kind of thinking, like, really, this, we're going to include this in our design or something? It's like, well, that's a theme. There's theme parks and cruise ships. <laughs> that's a a sector that was described as how those businesses can influence people and influence our habits. Like you have a TV. A lot of people might have a TV or the internet in their zone one, mm -hmm. and that can influence someone's um, choices. All right. The next part is going to be this stuff about edge, the edge of the city. Before we get there, I just wanted to mention that Toby talks about a website that was Portland-based where it's a database of fruit trees that you can harvest throughout the city, like whether they're public in public spaces or people that are willing to donate the fruit on their trees because they don't use it. And I think a l more and more communities are doing this, having online resources or groups that coordinate where the free fruit is. I think it's an awesome resource. I know that many decades ago that um, I, I I was running an online service that was before the Internet right. was a big deal, before the Internet caught on. And um, there were people that would post that kind of stuff. And I remember going to these trees. And then I remember um, going to one place and I got a ton of apricots. 
and then I noticed that, that the neighbors next door had a tree that was about 20 times bigger loaded with apricots. So I think I, I, I canned up uh, like 100 jars of apricot jam wow. that year. Um, and, you know, the, the big thing was is it's like neither of them sprayed because they didn't know that they ought to spray. And so it was like, you know, super organic. And, right. and since they didn't even water, neither of them watered their lawns or anything like that, then um, they were super powerfully flavored. Wow. And I think we talked in a previous podcast about how um, the residents here got loads and loads and loads of free apricots and free cherries from a nearby place that didn't spray. And now we have apricot trees. We called it Kai's Apricot Forest sprouting yeah. up on the lab. and Because you took lots. the pits and just stuck them in the ground. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we're very excited about that. But yes, the edge. The edge of the city. Mm. We can learn a great deal by examining the different types of edges found in city landscapes. These include the sun shade edge, and that had some clever things in it, moist dry edges, warm cold edge, soil edges, windy edges, and I'm trying to turn the pages while reading these, and I'm going to come back to them. Okay, that's it. Windy edges is the last one I checked off. All right, under... Um, so moist dry edges, I mean, that was going to be pretty obvious because you're going to have, like, uh, anything next to a sidewalk is going to get more moisture than, you know, the middle of your yard. What? I want to go back to the sun shade edge. I learned a new word. Changes in albedo. Do you say it? Albedo, albedo, A-L-B-E-D-O. Changes in albedo or the amount of reflected light are extreme. A city in a city is what he's saying. So the reflected light is kind of interesting, and I didn't know there was a word for that. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows that word. Uh, I, actually, wow. that's the first I've ever heard of it myself. I, right. I, albedo, albedo. Well, and, Reflected light. Why do you just say reflected light? Yeah. Well, and I, I'm thinking about this because we have created a canyon of a planting area here at Base Camp between the Fisher Price House and the Great Big Berm right across mm -hmm. from it. And... And I keep thinking, well, this has got to be an awesome microclimate for things that don't need all day sun. And, you know, and I've still been surprised at how well things grow in there, what we call a canyon. It's It runs kind of north-south on the property. Well, I think things grow well there because you, you get so little wind yeah. through there. That makes a big difference. I think there's going to be a lot more um, dew in yeah. there and stuff like that. But yeah. Those big berms, I mean, basically what we did is we deleted the road. Just, you know. The sound. and It's kind of yeah. like, you'd think there might be a button, but instead it involved the excavator and the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, and it's it's a huge amount of growing space that I'm still learning how to use. But it's it's kind of amazing how much light still makes it back in there and how well uh, things can grow in there. So on moist, dry edges, I mean, you're going to have stuff right next to the sidewalk because all the water that runs off the sidewalk, you know, is going to run to your growies. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, is like where you've got a gutter and then the gutter drains in a spot, 
that's going to be another super moist spot. Now, if it's 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 possible that your soil is so gravelly that the water just disappears, but I mean, there's things you can do to get that water to stay around longer and stuff. Well, here's something that struck me when he was talking about moist, dry edges in in a more expansive property. We try to create edge, like you might purposely make your pond to have multiple edges, or you might build chinampas to create more edge. You mm-hmm. might do all of these things. You know, we're building berms, and it creates edge. It creates difference. It t- creates texture. But the city, when you have so much hardscape, he's talking, he keeps bringing up what he calls edge blurring techniques to soften those edges because they're so harsh with hardscaping that it can be hard, difficult on things you're trying to grow and things you're, and uh, little ecosystems and microclimates you're trying to create. So in the moist, dry edges, he said another edge blurring technique is to redirect excess water away from the wet spots and into the dry ones using swales, berms, or other earth contours. So, I mean, and and of course you do that on a bigger property too, but it just seems more important with a hardscape in a city. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because you want edge usually. So now, when I was in Green Lake, we were talking about that a moment ago, then... um I I built uh, some hugelkultur beds on the strip of grass between the sidewalk and the road, mm-hmm. and there's pictures of that on Permies. Yeah. And then uh, there was also kind of like this weird driveway where it was obvious that somebody decided to not have a driveway there. So there was the curb cut and then the cement, but it suddenly ended at a wall. And so somebody changed their mind and and so we started like dumping uh build basically building a hugel culture on top of the cement wow and, and thinking like you know shallow rooted stuff will do all right uh-huh. but of course you know when the growies get to the cement then you know they're not as happy i mean they do okay with cement growies are like they they don't generally like cement very much but you know I, and we did. We grew a lot of stuff. I grew corn there the first year. Wow. You know, so. <clears throat> All right. Are you ready to go on? I'm, I'm yeah, wanting yeah. to go on a warm, cold edge. Go for it. Impermeable objects that block wind and dense ones that hold heat. The west side of a house will cook in afternoon sun, while just around the corner, the permanent shade of the north face is cool. Dryer vents, air conditioners, car exhausts. So he threw a lot of stuff into this thing about warm and cold edges that yeah. I I had never really thought about before. Like the you know, or the dryer the dryer vent, I mean as as a warm patch, it's like, oh that's right, that would be much warmer. And you could probably even do stuff to kind of make it warmer still. <laughs> kind of harvest the warm when it comes and then, like, you know, yeah. really go to town with that. Yeah. Well, you underlined that part, and I went to the next part where he's talking about basically the entire metropolitan belt is usually several degrees warmer than the surrounding countryside. And I remember that. I 
really, really, really was trying to get fuzzy kiwis to grow when I was in the suburbs of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of like, you might not be warm enough unless you have a really good little microclimate. But in Seattle is that much warmer because of the metropolitan area. And then plus Seattle is close to water, which is moderating, too. So I think it's usually four to seven degrees warmer in the city than the surrounding countryside. Yeah. And it's because of all the the roofs that, um, you know, so it's there's no shade on the roof, you know, kind of a thing. And uh, and of course, the streets, you know, the blacktop and and then how that absorbs so much heat. Yeah. So, um Okay, and the next one, it's for next kind of edge, is soil edge. And I've marked off a fair bit. So I'm just going to read this soil edge stuff I've marked off. Sure. Um, he, uh, he's, he's describing his own plot in Portland. It was amazing what he ran into with the soil there. So on the edges of the backyard lies orange clay mineral soil that is probably fill. And so he's describing... He's got loam here. Then he's got this orange stuff. Yeah. The pH of our urban yard varies from very acidic to roughly neutral, which I discovered when acid-loving blueberries did poorly in the backyard, but were thriving in front. I've also found one patch that is toxically alkaline. A little probing there revealed a deep layer of debris-filled Ash, where a trash burner had stood for perhaps decades. A subsurface belt of tightly compacted gravel marking an abandoned driveway. So he's, he's talking about how he started digging down where things didn't do well, and he found this tightly compacted gravel yeah. where there was a used to be a driveway. Um, and then uh, he found uh, eight inches below the surface was a buried sidewalk. Yeah. And then in another spot, he found a subterranean brick walkway. Yeah. Yeah. The house was built in 1885. That's an old house for the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty old. And <clears throat> and they there were so many different things that had happened on that property. They would just bury it and start over. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, effectively, I was doing the same thing out in the front. I was, I was burying that cement. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. going to grow a garden here. Yeah. So let's move on to toxic. So this is still in soil edges. Soils in cities often contain lead deposited in light dusting everywhere during the era of leaded gasoline and in concentrated bands along the foundations of most houses built before 1960, when lead-based paints were the rule. Backyards were once the traditional place to change oil, dump paint thinner, and generally treat as a petrochemical refuse site. All these remnant hazards may lurk beneath an innocent-looking lawn. As cities have gentrified, neighborhoods that were formerly industrial have been converted to residential uses, and unknown poisonous residues from manufacturing may fester in the soil beneath. Samples of groundwater downhill from cemeteries show high levels of mercury and other compounds used in embalming. 
rainwater running down road gutters could be an abundant resource for irrigation when shunted onto yards via curb cuts and bioswales. But since it is blended with petroleum drippings, it must be cleaned up first. And that's a big part of what we did in the uh, 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 World Domination Gardening 3DVD set. They they wanted uh, water from the roadway. It yeah. was destroying a gravel road. Right. And it's like rather than destroy the road, let's use it. And so the first step was to clean it. Right. So that was, you know, we did a lot to clean that water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a good time to say, do your earthworks first. I know we've mentioned it a couple of times, <laughs> but I mean, like, I feel like maybe I need to say this five times in every pod- podcast because... It's amazing how people, you know, get property and they're so happy and then they just start planting everything. And then three years later, they realize it's a it's problematic and they need to do earthworks. So they have to kill everything. And and they're like, oh, I'm just going to transplant it. And then they do a poor job of transplanting it. And of course, every time you transplant, you lose the taproot. And and so do your earthworks first. And that's what the World Domination Gardening 3DVD said about. And we said it. At a low price for uh, this winter of twenty bucks, so you can watch all three DVDs for twenty bucks. All right. Yeah, I you know a lot of these toxin vectors I wouldn't have thought of. I I hadn't even thought of how a cemetery could leach into the groundwater. That's pretty gross. Yeah. It it reminds me of my stepbrother who grew up in the city in New York City, I think, and he cannot stand the smell of um, lawns being mowed. You know how most people go, oh, that's such a great smell. Well, the only lawns in the city were at cemeteries. (laughs) And so it always creeped him out. You know, as a kid, you're like, ooh, a cemetery. It's the smell of dead people. (laughs) Yeah. So the smell of cut grass to this day reminds him of cemeteries. And now uh, it makes me think of that. All right. I'm going to finish reading this marked section. In colder regions, yards can be salted along the edges where road de-icers have washed onto them. Concrete itself is alkaline, thus runoff from streets, sidewalks, and foundations raises soil pH. Yeah. yeah, it just makes you kind of scared of urban soils in a way. Okay, I got one last bit from from uh, soil edges. If lead levels are high, the usual course is to remove the top 6 to 12 inches of soil and replace the soil. That's pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's lead. I mean, you can go and plant oyster mushrooms there, and, you know, they'll go and, and lock onto a lot of that lead and pull it into the oyster mushrooms. Then you got to take all these beautiful oyster mushrooms, cut them off, and throw them in the garbage because right. they're full of lead. Right, and yeah, and he talks about that, and I'm glad, <clears throat> I'm glad he included that specificity. Right, easy for me to say. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people thought, oh, you know, the mushrooms will clean it, and then we can eat the mushrooms. <laughs> the point is, no, they take the toxins out of the soil. 
and then you don't eat those mushrooms yeah. because they're full of the toxins. Because lead doesn't break down. Lead's an element. Yeah. I mean, there are some things that mushrooms or composting or something, it's like, oh, there's a bunch of um, cyanide in that. And they'll break it down into, like, safe stuff. No problem. Mm-hmm. But if you hear, oh, there's a bunch of arsenic in it. Well, arsenic doesn't break down. It's That's as broke down as it gets. And so it's like, all you can do is shuffle it. Yeah. So. Well, and previously he mentioned that urban soils are notoriously considered poor soils just because of all the toxin issues, all of these other issues. It's fill dirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. A lot of times construction practices are you just take all the topsoil off to get to the subsoil because that's a sturdy foundation, mm-hmm. you know, and then you bring in fill. And it's just crazy what happens to soil in construction. Um, and so he he goes on to talk about how mushrooms are are such soil builders that they're especially crucial in these poor urban, sometimes toxic urban soils. So yeah. All right. Windy edges. Mm-hmm. Average wind speeds in cities are less than in the country because the skyline acts as an immense windbreak. And don't we all like breaking wind once in a while? (laughs) But paradoxically, in cities, we find more air turbulence and extremes of wind speed. That's because the urban windbreak isn't exactly well designed, at least not to be designed as as a windbreak. Right. Um, The buildings vary enormously in height, spacing, and bulk, which is a recipe for roiled air. One result is the so-called Venturi effect. Wind is squeezed and speeds up between buildings. So this is actually something I did a fair amount of work on uh, during my um, corporate horror software development days Mm. when I worked for Coastal Environmental Systems. Mm. So we were doing a lot of work with this kind of stuff, trying to track like if uh, an awful thing happened somewhere, then we would be able to, our systems would be able to detect where would the awful thing go to in a city where winds are so varied and unpredictable. All right. Well, hey, and when it comes to all of those interesting little edges, that's those are my notes. I'm ready to go on to the next section. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Horizontal packing dicks. So it gets into this whole thing about how how do you make do with a tiny space? You want to do your gardening. And so then, of course, there's all the things that are really obvious. I mean, he does go into stuff about, um, in fact, you know, all right, so horizontal packing techniques, um, keyhole beds. <coughs> keyhole yeah. beds, I think, are brilliant in so many ways. In fact, uh, up on the lab, did you see what Sean was doing with culture beds? He was uh, kind of making them keyhole style. Okay, cool. So he had, on the uphill side, he had one giant culture bed, and then he had, like, legs coming down off of that, and he referred to it as, like, you know, doing doing it keyhole style. I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought it was, like, that's, that is a smart, smart thing. Mm-hmm. And it worked out really well for him, too. Um all right, so so keyhole beds, and, and I I don't think I could describe a keyhole bed over a podcast. Well, the the thing is, 
the, the design of the keyhole is that you go in a little pathway <laughs> and you can reach everything in the bed from that pathway. So, like, if you had something, <laughs> now you're laughing. Yeah. Uh, so if you had a garden bed that normally would have been five or six feet wide, <coughs> let's say five or six feet wide and ten feet long, you it would be really hard for you to reach. You can't reach all the way across it. You might not be able to reach um, the middle very well. And so you take these little keyholes and punch them in at, like, you know, three-foot intervals okay, so me, you can go in there and reach help, everything. Let me help with some Did of that, that stuff. Help? No? No, no, I, I know what you're saying because I know yeah, what a yeah. keyhole bit is now. But yeah. it's like for the longest time, um, all of the raised beds that I did yeah. were four feet wide. So you said, what if it is five feet wide? And, and it's like, okay, you make it four feet wide so you can reach the middle. Right. And so then four feet is the width. I mean, it's like, and when you're reaching the middle, it's a little bit of a, you know, a little, but it's not too bad. But For the, a tall person. Maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing is, is that with a keyhole, then it's like you might make your beds eight feet wide. And then what you're going to do is, is you're going to every once in a while have a little opening yeah. into it. Yeah. So that way you can get in there. Yeah. And then you've got a place where once you're in there, you can reach four feet in all directions. Yeah. And uh, uh, so then then you're going to make it. So you don't make a keyhole every four feet. What you do is you make it so that way you, you recognize that. Well, no, wait. I said it wrong a moment ago. Your maximum reach is two feet. Right. So you basically design it so that way... Every once in a while, you've got like a little path that goes into the middle of the bed. Yeah. And as long as you can, you know, you map out so you can reach two feet. So it turns out you can use a lot more space. You can grow more stuff this way with this keyhole design. Look in the book. Look in Toby's book. <laughs> Buy the book. Find a picture of it. Okay, but, yeah. but it, that's one way. That's a technique. Yeah. It's better than just having a bunch of, you know, raised beds that are four feet wide. Yeah. All right. And the next part he has in horizontal packing techniques is interplants and polycultures. Uh, and then at one point he mentions the dense polyculture developed by Ianto Evans. Yeah. And Ernie was um, uh, an intern with Ianto for three years working on all those gardens and all those rocket mass heaters and all those Cobb buildings in Cobbville. And uh, and Ernie's going to be here for our PDC this year. See, I'm, I'm plugging the PDC. That's I'm a, awesome. I'm a good boy. I remembered. Which is uh, May 28th through June 10th, if I remember correctly. That's exactly when it is, of 2017. Yes. And followed by the appropriate technology course, June which was a huge hit last year. Twelves? It, well, it'll be the next two-week block. To the 23rd. Yeah. Okay. It'll be the next two-week block. And um, uh, where the there's an early bird price right now that people can go and, and uh, you know, if you do it now, go now, now, <laughs> do it now. Um, yeah, We've already I, sold uh, 12 tickets. I'm really excited. You know, we've had... Uh, Rodale's Organic Gardening, <clears throat> Masanobu Fukuoka, which today is his, would have been his birthday, 104th, I think. Um, well, that sounds about right. Um, so 
<clears throat> we've had proof that organic methods <clears throat> are as productive, if not more productive, excuse me, <clears throat> than um, conventional agriculture. And now, as we're talking about polyculture, there are more people starting to study the difference between doing row crops of, of single you know, single varietals or single types of crops versus growing in polyculture. And Mm. and there's already been studies about companion planting, but companion planting isn't quite as... well, I mean, complex the, as polyculture. Think about the three sisters. Yeah. So Cornell University did that study where they they grew, you know, a field of corn, uh-huh. just corn, and then they grew another field of corn, same corn, same amount of corn, but then they also, you know, they did the three sisters. So there was squash and there was pole beans mixed right. in with it, and they got something like ten or twenty percent more corn. Out of the three sisters, you would think you'd get less, but they actually got more. Right. Plus, plus the squash and the beans. And you know the research on this has to be accurate because it's from Cornell, and they got corn (laughs) right in the name. (laughs) I think I probably used that joke in this podcast five times now, but maybe maybe it's my first time. I'm not sure. All right. I, I put those things out of my mind. Okay. Next, the next point he, uh, he's bringing up square foot gardening. Square foot gardening is indeed a, a brilliant way to squeeze more. No, of course, it kind of does some monocropping stuff, which is right. not our thing. But I got to give a shout out to Mel Bartholomew, who also died recently. Hmm. Jeez, man. 2016 is a brutal year. Look, I'm still alive. I'm still al- I made it. I'm not dead yet. You spent three months on flat on your back, but you made it through. 2016 tried. Yeah. But I lived. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, Mel Bartholomew's book, Square Foot Gardening, is a wonderful book. I just love the charts in there, which say when to plant things and stuff like that. And it's all annuals, which is unfortunate, which this is a point that Toby makes in here. You know, it's all annuals. And, and but, you know, but there's a lot of stuff to be learned from that book. The way that he explains it, it helps to get things to, to stick in your head well about how gardening works. Yeah. And so, but uh, he's, so here's Toby saying square foot gardening is a way to plant things more densely. And I'm yeah. kind of thinking like, yeah, maybe, kind of. Uh, right. Uh, I'd rather do polyculture, but. And and Toby said he's tried Mel's methods, the square foot gardening methods, but he altered he, the way he did it by using less um, uh, fossil fuel intensive soil amendments. He oh, tried yeah. to he tried to avoid that, which is just. Another epic thing about Toby that he's so aware of, you know, the the, the impact, the embedded right. energy and things and, and how much fuel it took to produce and transport different things. Well, and along those lines, that's something that he brings up here that I think is really powerful. And I think it's my next little note. Somewhere land is being used to produce your fertilizer. And the people doing that may not share your high ecological standards. And it's kind of like that uh, that guy, I can't remember where he is, but uh, he's got like 
three acres in a city and he's growing like millions of pounds of food and he's got like a um, aquaponic system and stuff. Oh, but, right. Will Allen, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will Allen. And then, um, uh, but he's got like trucks just dumping off organic matter all the time. And it's kind of like, yeah, if you bring in um, uh, 40 truckloads of organic matter every year, then you can produce about 40 truckloads of food. And it's, you know, a lot of fucking work turning all that compost and all that kind of stuff and work, 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 work. But there is the novelty that you got a lot of food to grow on a few acres. You know, and but I, I just don't... And I've I've had like fifteen people send me links like, man, isn't this fascinating? And it's like, yeah, going to Mars is fascinating too. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are really fascinating. Ah, uh, is it permaculture? I think a lot of people would say yes, it is permaculture. And and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Will Allen's project. Um, at the same time. I think bringing in a lot of organic matter from off-site is risky. I right. would I would choose to not bring in organic matter. Well, and that's a big part of what Toby talked about earlier in this chapter that you skipped over. And I was actually surprised you skipped over it. He talked about all the resources of the wood chips and, and you know, coffee grounds and produce and all of the things you can obtain easily and very near to you in an urban environment. And and yeah, and I know your concerns about what could be in those wood chips and okay. coffee grounds yeah. and produce from the store and all these okay. things. Okay, all right. The dude just died not that long ago. Oh, yeah. And I was kind of, as I was reading that, I was kind of wanting to bitch slap him a little bit on this topic. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it up. No, you brought it up just now with talking about Will Allen. But all right, so in there was a section where you're right. He's talking about like, oh, here in Portland, everybody loves coffee so much you can go and get all these coffee grounds, and yeah. and then there's all these, you know, it's, there's just an abundance of organic matter everywhere. It's this person over here, they, you know, their lawn clippings. That person over there, their the leaves off of their tree, and and uh, you know, so he's he's kind of listing off all of these different things. I mean, oh, you can, and I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but I remember another one that's mentioned in a lot of composting books is like, and you can go to places where they cut hair and get their hair, you know, including the blue stuff, you know, <laughs> and you can compost that. And, you know, the chemicals might not break down because they're designed to last, keep your hair blue for a long time. But, uh, you know, all the different chemicals and crap that are in all that hair and all the product and everything that's all clipped off and in the piles of hair yeah you get that too so um wood chips i'm not sure if i've ever talked about wood chips in a podcast before but i think probably so but all right well um just real quick then i'm going to say if your wood chips if your wood chips come from an urban lot a lot of times what happens is is that they uh, lay down a bunch of uh, herbicides for grasses. The trees took it up, um, and it turns out trees are not a kind of grass. And so then the trees got very sick, and then they said, well, I want to contact an arborist to get this sick tree out of here. So they cut down the tree, and they chip it, and then they're like, 
Now we just need some to find some stupid, dumb fuck sucker to take this off of our hands so we don't have to take it to the dump. And then there's there's some level two permaculturalist that's saying, oh, me, bring it to me, please bring it to me. And then chances are that the upsides of all of that organic matter are going to outweigh the downsides of the herbicides that are in that because it's going to probably be persistent herbicides. Um, but it's going to make your growies not nearly as awesome as if you did not bring persistent herbicides onto your property. Yeah. So um, I wish to discourage people from uh, using organic matter from off-site. It's like you you can do it. It it is possible, but I mean you've got to be brutal in the questions that you ask about getting the story behind it. And the wood chip guys, they don't want to hear any questions at all. It's like, and look, I got wood chips. Do you want them or not? That's all they want to know. Well, in 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 some cases, they might not be very truthful with their replies too. So oh, you've right. got that risk. Well, what answer do you want? Well, I want to hear that there's no weeds. Oh man, there's no weeds because this is all from Super Chem Place. Well, what I want is is no chem stuff. Oh. Yeah, it's that. It's totally organic. Um, I I would eat it, you know, if it wasn't wood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah it's like they're gonna find out what answer you want to hear and tell you that. We had a guy eat a wood chip. They were colored That's wood right. chips, and he's like, "Yeah, these are so safe. I'll eat them, even though they're all these colors." Colors. And so he started chewing one, but he couldn't chew it up enough to swallow it, and. Yeah, that was kind. Of, that was, was weird. That, was, that weird. was weird. But hey, I was, I was convinced that he definitely believed it was totally safe. Yeah. That was that was yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. Okay. Um, the stacked food forest. So that's if you got an urban lot, you know, yeah. and he talks about going going into the third dimension. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I you know I want to go into the third dimension too. It's called Earthworks. Have I mentioned my three DVD set on Earthworks? It's called World Domination Gardening. That's I, I'm even sick of hearing about it. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I I think Earthworks is better. But okay, sure. Um, if you plant a tree and it's gonna like you know pop out a bunch of apples and it's growing it all way the hell up there in outer space, then uh, you can still plant a lot of stuff under the trees. And in polycultures, a lot of stuff will actually grow better with half as much light. So it'll like produce twice as much with half as much light. So having dappled light is better than direct full day, all day sun. Yeah, I, I just want to go through the actual layers because this is talked about a lot in uh, permaculture courses and talking about food forests. And, and, you know, I think a lot of times we're first exposed to this, like in grade school, if we're told about the rainforest. But you can do this, you know, even if you're not in a tropical climate. And that's this, the goal of the food forest is that you have tall and small trees, you have shrubs, you have herbs, you have ground covers, you have root root crops and vines and that's you know seven tiers or so and then Paul Stamets the fungi expert wants an eighth layer of mushrooms so so you've got all of these plants are working together to create a food forest Stamets 
<laughs> All right. Um, so, so and and he goes on to clarify that in a smaller urban yards, the tall tree layer may really need to be omitted or scaled down. Like you might need dwarf trees or whatever, you know, depending on where, you know, your lot and depending what you're dealing with. a lot with. of things. Yeah. <clears throat> but it kind of comes back. To, I like the thing you said is about like your whole neighborhood becomes your orchard. Yeah. And and I thought that was a really cool idea, a really cool approach, because then instead of growing like five dwarf trees, five Frankenstein fucked up trees, you could grow one magnificent tree. Yeah. You know, I like the idea of one magnificent tree rather than like, oh, I, I did a Frankenstein tree thing. Well, and that's a really good part of the observation point of permaculture, too. A lot of times it's recommended that you observe before you plant or do your earthworks or do whatever. And and Toby <coughs> basically observed what his neighbors had. You know, his one neighbor had figs, another had Granny Smith's, another had Bartlett pears. And he was he had room to plant like one or two fruit trees. And if he hadn't observed and found out what his neighbors had first, he might have planted another Bartlett pear and Granny Smith. But when he found out what his neighbors had and were willing to share, then he chose fruits that weren't already nearby. I think it was persimmon and Asian pear. Right. And and so he rounded out the fruit of their little neighborhood there. So the next section I've marked off, he talks about how he he enjoyed doing an espalier uh, uh, tree. How he enjoyed the espalier technique, mm-hmm. which I loathe the espalier techniques. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, he mentioned me. <clears throat> he said, uh, and "This is this is hilarious. This is." He said, "New age types sometimes call these severe pruning techniques horta torture." I didn't know I was a new age type. Did you use that term before? This is the first I've ever heard of horta torture. Well, I, I, and uh, and so I'm I kind of like that horta torture. I'm going to use that word horta torture. Um, I've I've been using Frankenstein. You you do the Frankenstein thing. On, yeah. But but really, espalier is more about pruning than grafting. So grafting is is Frankenstein. Well, it's both, isn't it? Okay, you you're sure? Yeah. Most of but time. what he's doing with, with spalier, it's, it's just intensive pruning and pinning and and pinning the poor thing down and forcing it to grow in ways that it wasn't really designed to grow. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. He goes into all the different, you know, besides the spalier, there's, you know, these other ones that have fancy names. What are those names? I'm a snag. A snag? A sensitive new age guy. Oh. <laughs> I, I heard that once. Oh. Well, it says new age types. Right. I don't think I'm a new age type. Right. I, I, I think I'm simply just not a new age type. But uh, anyway, all right, I'm, I'm trying to get past 
Toby referring to new age types because I think I think That's it must be a larger well, audience than just that. Well, he had fun learning about it, and and he was a big fan of using that in an urban environment and for high productivity. Um, and he was saying, especially if it's in zone one where you can see it all the time, to keep it pruned the way it, it takes a lot of maintenance to do something like that, but. Yes, and then the next section, it looks like you're going to. I'm going to, yeah, uh, trellises and other stacking tactics. Arbors, trellises, fences, walls, hanging planters, stakes, teepee frames, suspended netting, tree trunks, and almost any other vertical surface can be used to train plants upward. Obviously, any vining perennial, such as grape, jasmine, wisteria, or kiwi, as well as annuals like beans and peas, should be boosted up into the air to take up less room. But I see a surprising number of other plants sprawled across expanses of precious earth when they could be stacked skyward. Winter squash, melons, and cucumbers are often left to ramble, yet their natural habitat is to climb. For these, some people fashion slings from netting and old pantyhose to hold the fruits, believing squashes and such will break off if left hanging unaided. I stopped making slings after a Hubbard squash ran a furtive tendril up a lilac bush and before I noticed it had dangled an unsupported 30-pound squash from a straining branch. I concluded that nature could build tough enough hangers without my help, and since then, our melons, cucumbers, and squash have hung on their own successfully. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's my last note. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think I only had a note later where he he just goes on and on about lots of great creative ideas for, you know, trellising, climbing, stacking. And, and he asks, how many functions can we create by stacking plants into the vertical? You know, there's shade, there's cooling, there's privacy, there's there's all of these different things that can happen when you you know grow plants up walls and 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 I just think that's so useful, not just urban but also suburban and rural. Uh, we've talked about all the things we'd love to grow to help shade the southern portions of some of our buildings, um, and uh, one of these days we'll grow them. So I can't remember if it was 1993 or 1994 where it was that summer that I read the 100 gardening books. But um, whatever, whenever that was, it was way back. And and one of the books I read was about trying to garden on a tiny lot in San Francisco. And um, so, of course, they made ample use of every window had like a window box planter. Um, but then they were also creating stuff to have planters mounted on the walls. And in fact, in Missoula, I once saw something where not only did they have planters mounted on the walls, but it was rigged up. So if you dripped some water in at one point up high at one spot, 
it would end up running down and watering all of it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do planters, of course, you have to water. So yeah. I kind of feel like you're stepping away, maybe stepping away from permaculture. I mean, you're making it hard. You're making a bunch of work. Okay, but this thing in San Francisco went on. They constructed a bunch of scaffolding over the roof. And and then, you know, so they had all of this stuff so you could get up on the roof to water these plants every day. And then, uh, plus, when we were in Portland once, then we went to Norris uh, Tomlinson's place, and then they had, like, a area of roof over their garage, I think, which is a flat roof, and that was all planted. Right. And right. so, you know, when you're really trying to compress a lot of stuff into a little bit of space, you know, these are the things. And, of course, on decks, people will have planters and stuff. And But I, I kind of feel like really, you know, getting into the proper soil, which is what Toby, Toby limited it to talking just about that and not doing any planters at all. And um, I kind of felt like that's I, – I like that. I like the idea that we're dealing directly with it because then now we can have an aged soil that can have um, soil uh, structure – and uh, it's going to have a lot of mycelium in the soil. And you can, you know, the polyculture benefit where plants help plants help plants. Uh, that kind of thing going on, which is really hard to do in a container system. True, true. Yeah. But it was uh, it was great to get back into Gaia's garden after so long. And um, I'm looking forward to reading the rest. So we've got half a chapter, uh, half of chapter 11 to still do. So we've only done the first half of chapter 11. And then uh, chapter 12 looks fairly short. And then we'll be done. Unfortunately, Toby can't review our review. That's kind of a bummer. I was kind of looking forward to that. That'll learn me. <laughs> I think Toby might have had, had, had fun and... Picking apart our picking apart. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about Toby Hemingway, homesteading, and permaculture all, all the time. time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.